Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's the Wonky Show. We talk NSS, governance, and the new student representatives. It's all coming up. You know, listening and, and learning how people operate, um, you know, for, for people who are probably quite young and quite inexperienced, you know, it's an absolute inoculation of experience of higher level leadership and management that not, not many people get in their kind of first steps in their careers. So. Welcome to The Wonky Show, your direct way into higher education, policy, people and politics. I'm your host, Rachel Firth, coming to you live from Swansea this morning and here to scull across the swimming pool of HE policy. As usual, we have three incredible guests. In leafy Oxfordshire, we have Mary Cook, serial non-exec director. Mary, give us your highlight of your week, please. Oh, well, apart from the amazing wonky Counting the Cost conference, uh, my highlight was actually yesterday hearing Andy Haldane, who's the chief economist at the Bank of England, and he was speaking at an Open University 50th anniversary panel thingy. And he described the further education sector as the collapsed left lung of education, which should be resuscitated urgently. And then Andy Westwood um, on Twitter tweeted a collection of metaphors for FE, including Kenneth Baker's enduring Cinderella sector. Then Lord Turnbull in the Lords calling FE a blasted wasteland. And then Augur with, I thought, rather less imaginative missing middle and... um, Anyway, I've got the collapsed left lung at the top of my metaphorical league table. Thank you so much for that. And thank you for mentioning the um, kind of the cost conference. If you want to catch up on that, listeners, it's all on wonky.com. You can find out what happened on the day. Um, and in York, we have Pete Quinn, HE consultant and guest lecturer of education at the University of Hong Kong. Pete, your highlight of the week, please. Uh, well, I had a great day uh, earlier this week with Student Minds, working with a, an accommodation provider on some training that we're co-delivering. But I think my highlight's a personal one in that as a lifelong New Order fan, my daughter at school is about to perform True Faith, um, which is an iconic New Order song so I'm, I'm really looking forward to that it's going to be one of those moments when i may have something in my eye oh how wonderful how, what, and, and what instrument does she play well she's just singing she's in uh, true bernard sumner style but they, it's <laughs> the the learning uh, idea of this term for her class is 80s icons which makes me feel very old but it's good that they're still studying the classics <laughs> the classics indeed i think that's what classics at oxford is actually i think you just studied the 80s um and in london we have wonky's editor-in-chief mark leach mark give us your moment of the week please Hi, Rachel. Um, it's a real tie for me this week between two moments. Uh, so I'm going to cheat and give, give you both. Um, first was my uh, first ever board meeting as a governor of Middlesex University, uh, which I'm absolutely thrilled to be joining this year. It was just really fascinating meeting. Um, uh, and I learned a lot. Uh, the second one is uh, my interview with Philip Auger at Counting the Cost, our event on, on his review uh, earlier in the week which was an odd moment in that 
he, despite having published the review, kind of didn't really want to defend it or or talk about any of its detail. Um, and I don't, I'm not sure how well he came off uh, to an audience of higher education wonks. Um, he said his line was that, well, he's written 200 pages, so he's had his say. But then when pushed on any of the kind of controversial points and recommendations, he didn't really want to discuss them uh, and then said kind of it's goodbye from me so i think i think this could be the last we see of philip auger um take that what you will so we start this week with the national student survey annual census of nearly half a million students across the uk results are in so pete what did we learn from the nss this year well, just to be clear for those who don't know, um, it's a final year student only survey. And this, uh, for this recent output, there was, um, the result of 330,000 students had answered, 84% of whom were satisfied, which is up a percentage point from last year. But as you would expect, there's varied satisfaction between different courses at universities and different universities have different satisfaction levels too. Assessment and feedback seem to be one of the areas where there were still low levels of satisfaction. Um, and th- there's been a small average rise in satisfaction and a small average fall in dissatisfaction. Um, I think at the root of it is it's an imperfect tool. I think um, a lot of people would agree. Um, and it's the, in the granular details that um, the focus is needed. And although we've got the uh, the quantitative data, um, I always find in, in reading the comments from various NSS surveys is where you get to the, the heart of the matter. Well, I... Um I just think that uh, annual surveys are, Pete's absolutely right, it's an imperfect tool. And um, a survey which takes a snapshot of just final year students, you know, at one moment in time in the year is is not going to really give us uh, granular information about satisfaction at a university. And uh, like like others, I think it's, it's due for an overhaul. I think we should be doing uh, much more frequent pulse surveys that go across all years <clears throat> and we'd get a much better idea of what's going on in the sector. Mark, are you satisfied with the National Student Survey? Well, I mean, there's, there's obviously there's obviously issues with NSS that has been since the beginning. Um, you know, averaging out the experience of fine arts students and nursing students across one institution tells you very little, as, as DK put on uh, his analysis earlier this week. I think that um, th- there are always useful things to to learn though inside the data um, and there are genuine improvements that can be made as a result of them so the classic one is, is always about um, uh, feedback on, on assessment and um, that is something that always scores low and has done again um, and if it's an impetus to to improve internally in an institution uh, if the scores are not coming out too well then I think that's um, that's definitely a good thing I'm also interested in the kind of the, the sector movement I mean a, a league table of just NSS isn't isn't very helpful um but it's quite interesting to see some of the movement around um uh, at a provider level that we've had this year so institutions that have done previously very very well um in nss like lincoln and buckingham notably have um have fallen down this year i'm not not sure exactly what's going on there um and also uh, but also others who've also done not so well in the past have moved up so uh, lse for example saw an increase of seven percentage points that's an institution that's always struggled with nss because of its makeup um of students and 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 kind of provision um so i I think there's some i think there's an interesting story on on a sector level there's also of course the uh the data we have about student unions and um they've been they've now been uh put in there as a question uh, satisfaction with student unions uh, for the last last couple of years, and uh, very mixed picture for for them in these res- 
results. Um, again, the sort of thing that should hopefully lead to some soul searching and perhaps some positive improvement. So um, on that level, I think, um, you know, I think we can, we can, we can use NSS for kind of for goods rather than for evil, but it sort of takes a bit of, um, it takes a bit of work in the institution, I think. Yeah. And there'll be people uh, in institutions pouring over the, you know, the written responses. There'll be one, one or two poor souls in each institution will have had the job of having to read line by line, pretty much every single comment that students have made from their institution, but they are very powerful comments. And that, that really does get to the heart of the issue. I just wanted to pick up on something to do with the, the feedback on assessment, because uh, we ran a conference that was kindly hosted by the university of Bath recently, which uh, was to do with inclusive uh, assessment and there were some really good examples of of inclusive feedback mechanisms and ways of giving feedback to students about their academic work that they could engage with that they could really appreciate and really feel that that, that they'd been responded to and I know that many many of the the kind of dissatisfactions come from scribbled comments in margins um, rather than someone having um, you know time and it doesn't need to take too much time but time to feedback to students because they've come into universities through a massive feedback loop now from from schools and from from that many lives are um, many student lives are kind of reliant around feedback and recognition um, and, and that really needs to be worked on clearly but there are really good and innovative ways of doing that so just agreeing with Mark that there are some some um, real opportunities for good news stories and for for really taking the results of this imperfect tool and putting them into practice in an effective way so we're agreed it's an imperfect tool but a necessary tool and it can be a useful one. Mary, if I can bring you back in on that, in the, in the kind of first round, you mentioned it wasn't the, you know, the most perfect of survey, however um, necessary. Yeah. I mean, you know, you see what happens in, in universities to, um, you know, to make sure that they're addressing issues in NSS and around the survey time. And, you know, it clearly puts universities kind of on point to address the issues that they're going, they're likely to get bad feedback in. And that, that must be, um, a good thing overall. It also Pete, Pete mentions this, the, the the feedback loop, and I, I think it's it, it's probably possible to overstate, but it's a really core component. The NSS results are a really core component of a number of different um, measures of the sector. So obviously, it's in TEF, although its influence in TEF has been dramatically uh, down downscaled from the early iterations of the exercise. But if you look at things like the Guardian League tables, which focus heavily on um, uh, the student experience NSS is is really important, um, and then and which which obviously has an impact on then student decision making about where they're going to apply. Um, the other place it's really um, important, and, and we're going to come onto this later, is uh, in governance. So it's one of those kind of KPIs that uh, boards of governors can use to judge the effectiveness of their executive team. And there's no university in the land that doesn't want to improve its student experience. We've seen numerous examples of where. Um, a consistent failure to improve in NSS results has contributed to vice chancellors getting the chop. Um, and you know, you could argue, uh, you could argue, well, that's that's probably a good thing if um, if, it, if it's uh, if it, if it means that people are moving in the right direction, improvement-wise. Uh, but it also, I guess, it just ups the stakes somewhat um, internally and across a number a number of institutions, which uh, which either need to improve or maintain um, a hard-won position. I just think it. I mean, it's. We often talk about consultation fatigue or survey fatigue, and and at least this one does give us an, an insight, and it's got a large response rate. But I know that it's really difficult to to move away from NSS only because um, students feel really overwhelmed with the amount of feedback that's sought from them on an ongoing. Uh, basis. So I think the NSS is probably here to stay for a little while yet, albeit that it doesn't quite do the job that we wish it would. I think it's also worth noting that 
this year's results uh, bring up the the, um, the response rate to the the pre boycott era. So um, in twenty seventeen, there was a student boycott of NSS, which which hit um, the numbers of students replying um, to the survey uh, and saw a bit of a breakdown, I think, in the kind of consensus about how uh, what NSS is for and how it's used. Um, but um, I guess with with the boycott now kind of in the rearview rear mirror and the um, response rate back up to pre boycott levels, I think that whole question seems largely behind us. Right, let's see who's been blogging for us this week. My name's Lily Dudding, I'm a data intent officer at Show University and this week on Wonky I delve into the latest off-board statistical release which contains data on the number of GCSE, AS and A-level subject entries in 2019. With a view to seeing how policy may be impacting subject demand at level 2 and level 3 and how this then might follow through to subject demand at degree level. So I think the main takeaways from this piece are that the hard science and the social sciences have both seen growth at GCSE and A-level over the last three years, results in humanities have seen decline over the last three years. So performing arts, for example, has seen decline of 38% at GCSE and 53% A-level over the last three years. Media and drama have also seen decline over the same period. English has declined by 20% at A-level over the last three years. And I think really what we're seeing now is the impact of the English Baccalaureate coming into effect. Subjects that have seen growth at A-level and generally those that are covered by the EVAC or those that have seen decline or those that aren't within the EVAC. So I think perhaps we're seeing students more likely to take those subjects at GCSE, which is then following through to subject interest at A-level and also may follow through to the same interests at degree level. So I think that, I suppose the question is, what are the implications of this for the sector and how is the sector ready to respond? Marco Thomas, Provost Chancellor of Liberal Arts and Sciences at the University of Greenwich. This week in Monkey, my article tries to drill down into the much vaunted value discussion in higher education, particularly in the light of the Auger Review. What interests me is what is happening right now across the sector in the arts and humanities, where courses are being cut and student numbers have decreased. In the piece, I examine why students are tending to choose these subjects less and less, and chart the decline back to the crisis of arts, music, and modern foreign languages teaching in secondary schools. My concern is that these vital subjects are becoming the sole domain of richer students whose parents can afford to send them for private lessons. Worse still, I see our universities colluded with a funding system that has propagated the situation and made it worse. So we have the arts and humanities in terminal decline, while the business school and STEM are in a meteoric state of ascendancy. Ultimately, the piece is a kind of call to action, with the aim of turning around the notion of value, social, cultural, as well as economic, and understanding it in ways that actually afford society with the benefits of a more egalitarian and quitable higher education system which values all disciplines equally. I'm just going to do that last paragraph again, if that's okay. Ultimately, the piece is a call of action with the aim of turning around the notion of value, social, cultural, as well as economic, and understanding it in ways that actually afford society with the benefits of a more egalitarian and equitable higher education system which values all disciplines. Now, next up, we talk governance, as we saw a university respond to an Office for Students investigation this week. The university being investigated was De Montfort University, and in their response, they acknowledged that 
its governance was inadequate and that the governing body did not provide sufficient and robust oversight of the university's leadership. So, Mary, what did you make of all this? Well, I mean, this is uh, an unprecedented statement um, from DMU, and I, and I think it'll be a low point in its history. It'll it'll become a kind of an enduring bookmark in its history. Is it'll be a reference point that lots of future decisions and discussions will relate back to uh, in the future. And and I agree. I mean that um, uh, statement was uh, was devastating. It's it's about as bad as it gets in in my governance book. Um, the statement goes on to imply that there was a pretty liberal use of university funds for international travel. Um, including with partners of staff and governing bodies. I mean, that's the kind of stuff I thought went out in the in the 90s, didn't it? Um, whistleblowers not being treated properly. Uh, governing body members conflicted through consultancy contracts. I mean, this is um, just astonishing that this happens in this day and age. Uh, Remco wasn't independent in its decisions. The university broke its own financial regulations, including on uh, procurement and basically that the governance was was not independent and and it was riddled with conflicts of interest it's really it's not a pretty story at all um and apart from anything else i think it'll it'll probably mark the start of a, an ultra cautious era of governance and leadership in the university and 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 it's that that might do the university more harm in the long term than than obviously the very damaging headlines of of the moment um I also thought what was interesting was the OFS statement about the investigation. Um, And the key passage says, um, given the university's cooperation with the investigation, the action it's already taken to address our concerns and its clear plan for future actions, we've not made any formal findings on this occasion. We've now closed our investigation and we'll continue to monitor the university's progress, blah, blah. Um, And then they also uh, publish the action plan and there's a follow-up quote, uh, blah, 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 then the OFS will use the full range of our enforcement powers where necessary to investigate and resolve similar compliance concerns. Um, And I, you know, I think some regulation experts will want to contemplate that, you know, the real seriousness of the failings um, at this university. Um, And then this sort of naming and shaming response from the regulator, which doesn't really go much further than naming and shaming and then obviously generally monitoring future um, compliance. Um, More widely, uh, I think university chairs across the sector will be dusting off their own terms of reference. They'll be rereading the CUC code of governance and they'll be rereading the relevant OFS regulations, um, looking to ensure that they really do have adequate oversight over the kind of things that went so badly wrong at DMU. Um, I think critically, they'll want to ensure that there's more than one member of the governing body looking at these things. Um, And I think they'll want to become super sensitive to the formation of cliques within the membership of a governing body, which which does sometimes happen. Um, uh, I'm a member of the Open University Council, and I'm I'm certainly myself kind of rereading some of the key documents to make sure the ground is is properly covered. I think anyone on a governing body who's relaxing and thinking it wouldn't happen here should read the DMU statement and realise that it probably could happen anywhere if the governing body is too passive and too ready to let the university leadership run the governing body's business. Um, And if they're not taking 
very seriously the responsibilities and the accountability that goes along with the job, then uh, you know they could be cruising for a for a bruising. But I mean, what do, what did others make of of this story? Um, I, I think there's probably a very, it's a very good case study of the kind of hippo principle. You know, the highest pers- paid person's opinion, and I think a lot of things just got left. Um, you know, to 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 tick tick on and tick over. I'd just like to recognise the the difficulty that this brings to the really dedicated staff at DMU, because you know the, we're focusing on the the, the top table and, and the governors there. But there's real um, if you if you've looked at this and you look at the uh, the impact it's had on morale there and on uh, on the, on their frontline staff is it's it's really tricky and really difficult. I I don't see so many comments coming out from students on on their dissatisfaction, but I think you're absolutely right, Mary. I think other places will really need to take a long hard look and 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 very much it it, it could happen. There and it must not happen there. Um, unfortunately, it's one of a series of episodes where um, the, the governance and leadership haven't um, moved as rapidly and as quickly as um, change in higher education as a whole has. Um, and I think accountability is the key word. And I think it'd be a really good opportunity for um, you know the, the 39 point checklist might be a really good um, tick box exercise um, to look at uh, for most governance um, in terms of uh, are we at risk from this? What can we do about this this issue? Um, but I, I fear it won't be the last. Um, and I don't think it was uh, particularly unknown that there were there were issues there. So I think um, you know we really do need to take this as a, a serious you know card marked situation. So it's quite extraordinary that the level of breakdown of, of the governance at De Montfort University that um, its own statement and OFS's statement set out although we don't know the actual details we, we kind of we, we have the sort of categories of um, things that went wrong which are pretty much everything that can go wrong uh, when it comes to governance um, but the, the times for example though did report that um, the former VC Dominic Shallard um, owned shares in a company um, uh, owned by the chair of the remuneration committee who then um, increased Dominic Shallard's uh, pay from 286,000 to 350,000 pounds a year and stuff like that it's just it's kind of extraordinary that it can happen um, in a major public university like de Montfort um, I think that it's I think I agree with both Pete and Mary that there's obviously an opportunity to use this uh, I guess to reflect and other institutions about what could go wrong, um, how to improve processes to make sure something like this doesn't happen again. But I mean, Pete hinted at, at it, but you know, people have known that things have, have been going wrong at DMU for quite a long time. And we've seen a few things reported now in, in the public domain in the press about, um, the dodgy dealings at the top table. Um, but there was a systemic problem for a number of years as, as, as vast, vast numbers of former DMU employees uh, will attest to. I know many personally um, uh, who witnessed all kinds of uh, bad behaviour over a number of years um, and and got out um, got out to kind of save themselves and their own careers. Um, it was not a surprise to them or, or anyone else in the sector who have been very well aware of this kind of stuff um, for, for a number of years that this was all going to come to a head. By who? You say that um, if people had intervened sooner, but who? Who should have uh, done that sooner? So, there were so many stories circulating, so many things said directly to us. Uh, about what was going on there, and we you know we don't we don't cover what happens at individual universities, particularly on on Wonky. We're interested on, on a system level, and also very difficult to go on kind of uh, rumor, anecdote, hearsay, anything like that. 
Um, and so a very difficult issue for us to pick up, particularly given it involves so many people kind of on, on a personal level. Um, I just, I, I feel like there's been a, a real collective failure of the sector to um, to deal with uh uh, what was going on at DMU, which started with, I think, a culture of uh, bullying and harassment and ended in total breakdown of governance and dodgy dealings that are, are clearly short of criminal activity, but, you know, probably probably not that far off. Um, although, of course, there's no suggestion of that in, in the RFS statement. So I, th- I think that the other thing, other thing to say is that, you know, RFS's predecessor, Hefke, has been doing an awful lot of kind of baseline activism on, on governance um, over over a number of years. Um, you know, most famously intervened in London Met and placed itself on the, on the London Met board. Um, it, it's quite interesting to me that the OFS response now, which is meant to be a much kind of tougher regulator, is to present, um, you know, a couple of dozen uh, recommendations, which seem fairly anodyne, you know, one that jumped out of me was sending governors on training courses. Well, I mean, that all seems a bit baseline. Um, there's clearly um, a bigger, bigger soul searching to be done about um, uh, how a situation like this can emerge in the first place over so many years when so much of it was known by other people in the sector, thanks to whistleblowers and others uh, com- coming in and out of the institution. So I feel like there's a kind of collective breakdown as well as an institutional one. And I, I don't know what, I don't know what to take from it yet, but I feel like, uh, I feel like I'm, a lot of it probably could have been avoided. It's also, I think, so slightly naive to think that just going on a training course would train you that you shouldn't have shares in a, a business owned by. Well, it just seems, yeah, it just seems like common mean? sense. You, exactly, you you shouldn't need training to understand that. Um, Pete, um, well, uh, you want uh, to come back in on this? T- totally agree with your last point as well. That you know the Nolan principles uh, are pretty obvious even to even to the lay person. Um, I, I really hope this doesn't overshadow. DMU's progress in other areas. They've got a really good approach to inclusive teaching and learning. Um, you know, they're kind of at the forefront of that strategically. So I hope that they're having to rein in some of their activities clearly um, doesn't affect that. I think the culture change piece that Mark touched on is really critical. And I think many institutions, there's a lot of data to show that bullying and harassment is um, taking place all over um, all over organisations, whether it's in the higher education sector or not. But there's a really um, interesting emerging um position that, that some organizations taking called radical transparency and that's been completely open and I think that really needs to happen in, in many more of our institutions. Um, radical transparency in the fact is how we're going to respond to these difficult um, situations that we've got ourselves into and how we can re-emerge from those and I think uh, London Met's a really good example of that. Um, you know London Met has has um, radically transformed from the institution it was and uh, and is pushing forward so there's a great model we've got already of what can happen uh, in in um, in organizations like that and the the previous vc of london i think wrote a really interesting piece uh, that i read on leadership uh, and how he had to approach leadership uh, in an organization that was um, embattled and and had reached a low ebb which i would i would agree uh, well i would argue that that dmu um, looks like at the moment, certainly from a governance perspective. But um, I hope that I hope the the, uh, the the staff and students there aren't as adversely impacted as this is, as might be possible. Now it's time for yes, but does it correlate? Here to set this week's correlation question. Back from his break, it's Wonky's associate editor David Kernahan. Hi, it's me again. Back doing yes, but does it correlate? Sorry about that. With both Leo and NSS dropping in the past week or so, I couldn't pass out the chance to put the two together. 
looking at the much maligned creative arts graduates from the class of 2014-15, I plotted median salary one year after graduation against overall satisfaction as measured by percentage degree in the NSS. Ward institutions where students are more satisfied also see graduates with better paid jobs. Does it correlate? It was interesting to see that a number of um, arts specialist institutions were in the in the bottom five or ten of of the NSS. Um, and I remember talking to one dean of a of an arts faculty who said, "Yes, but Mary, we're teaching these people not to be content," <laughs> which I thought was quite an interesting um, an interesting take on uh, you know kind of creative types. Um, so I would I would guess that uh, we know creative arts people are um, at the lower end of the pay spectrum, and it looks like they're also um, might be at the lower end of satisfaction or or contentment so i'd say it does correlate so dk likes to play games with us um, <laughs> the answer is almost certainly the, the counterintuitive one i wonder if uh without trying to overthink it too much um you know the the experience of um as kind of mary mary alluded to the discontented uh higher education experience of of uh, immersing yourself in the creative arts and learning about it in a way that's very hard to quantify um made you know made this cohort you know hungry to get out there in the world and um you know make something for themselves on on the back of that so uh, i'm gonna go with uh, yes um, mm. There are lots of there are lots of reasons for no, but I I I think it's five years ago, and there may have been you know they may have been the halcyon days. Who knows? It's such a long time <laughs> ago in the world we're in. Um, and yes, I agree with Mary about the creative arts dynamic um, in terms of, but they are small institutions, and perhaps they were quite satisfied. But I doubt that their medium income is uh, is particularly high. So I'm, I am going to go with no, though. And the answer is an unequivocal no. R squared is not point not 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 full, suggesting there is no relationship whatsoever between these two variables. But why would they be? Are we seriously suggesting that the perceived quality of provision has any bearing on graduate salaries? Want to think about that for our DFE and Treasury listeners. It'll be fun to add in other subjects, but likely this would be a slow process as there are few subject areas that can be cleanly mapped between Jacks and the modifications within Leo. Leo is, of course, England only, and therefore so is this plot. And as usual, where the data doesn't exist, I've not plotted it. And finally, it is that time of year where student union officers change over, with hundreds of new elected representatives taking the reins. So, Mark, you were an officer all them years ago. What advice do you have for the incoming student union officers? Well, it's a really exciting week. I remember, I remember it vividly. Um, I was uh, elected to be education officer at the University of Kent in my students' union, full-time sabbatical position, um, and I was, abs- I, I, I was kind of so excited to do this. I'd been a course rep the whole time. I'd been on faculty boards. I'd signed up to every committee. I was on the library information committee. Uh, I was just, you know, I was a bit of an education nerd. Um, which incidentally is is where I also got interested in, in higher education policy, uh, which led me to uh, found Wonky. Um, and as a new sab, I was just just thrilled to kind of get my um, get to even more committees. Basically, I know it sounds really. Sad. I got to go to all sorts of much more high level committees that you know, just as a lowly course rep, you know, on a kind of the, the faculty of humanities or whatever, uh, you wouldn't get to go. You got to be on senate. 
I mean, that was brilliant. You got to have catch-ups with the, uh, the, the PVC for learning and teaching. And, um, you know, that was all super exciting to me. Um, I started a blog about it. Uh, it was a precursor to social media, so that no one really could be told about the blog or read it subsequently. Um, but that was definitely the, um, the predecessor to Wonky. Uh, it's a true story. Um, anyway, so my advice is um, get to know your university as best as you can. You've got loads of allies um, across the institution, possibly and sometimes in surprising places. Um, you'll have lots of lots of refuseniks and people who don't think the student union has anything uh, to value, and probably a bit jaded by the the kind of the churn of uh, officers coming in every single year. But just ignore that um, and work with the people who want to make change happen in the university, because I, whichever university you can say this about, every single one there will be jam-packed full of those type of people and you've just got to find them and you've got to you've got to work with them and they'll be delighted that you're 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 on their side as well um yeah so i think um apart from all the things that that mark rightly points out that actually having agency you know that kind of agency in your in your own university is is fantastic um i also think that it's um really valuable work experience you know for many of um student union officers it'll be the first time they've had a kind of full-time paid uh paid role and um lots of learnings for that that they can take forward into their career you know not all of them go on to found wonky or become mps or um, or whatever and um you know they'll be learning all they'll they'll be seeing up close and personal they'll be seeing the university leadership and how that how that works i think that experience of you know that mark said of sitting in on committees and stuff it's you know, listening and, and learning how people operate, um, you know, for, for people who are probably quite young and quite inexperienced, you know, it's an absolute inoculation of experience of higher level leadership and management that not, not many people get in their kind of first steps in their career. So, um, so I would say grab all that learning um, and, 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 you know, write stuff down because you forget you forget stuff so easily. Uh, write it down when you see how people interact and how people manage themselves in meetings, how um, how discussions work, how decisions are made, and so on. Um, I think it's a fantastic opportunity for them. I, I no, I was a course rep at Oxford Brooks, uh, and uh, actually, at sixth form college, I, I was um, involved in student politics. But no, I um, I didn't get involved in student union. Um, stuff uh, when I was a, an undergrad. I um, have met many um, student union folks since though, and um, it's often a delight. Um, I think I would say to the, uh, you know, it'd be kind of, you know, for the, for the rabble rousing um, chat, uh, speak truth to power, I think is really important. Um, you know, and, and it sounds a bit twee, but it's, it's very true. Uh, no good deed goes unpunished. I'm afraid. Um, I think that applies across uh, most people working in in most uh, areas of higher education. But but it, you know you don't always get rewarded for the good things that you do. And and what I've always found is it's wonderful to meet the enthusiastic, um, really up for changing the world people who come through. Um, I just think they just need to manage and limit their expectations a little bit. So maybe just try and change three things rather than the whole institution, society and the wider world. Um, I think they need to bring it right down to what's achievable within that year they've got because the year goes so quickly 
Uh, and they can make such a difference, but if they get spread too thin, then that's when, when problems happen. And I think the final thing, which applies to all of us, is make sure that you have your own life as well, because uh, you have so many commitments um, day and night as a as a sabbatical officer that it's really important that you keep some stuff that you can do for yourself to escape from it all, because it does get pretty intense sometimes. I was an officer at the University of Luton, which now the University of Bedfordshire, that's how old I am. So the University of Luton, I was the vice president of comms when you used to have comms officers that did the magazine and such. And I remember I, I, someone put me in this committee meeting and unlike Mark, this is not my, you know, I didn't, I didn't really yearn to go to these massive kind of Senate meetings, quite the opposite. But somehow I found myself around this table of these people who seem to be speaking this strange language and I kind of tuned out and I'm desperately trying to keep, keep on track of the conversation. I remember, I still remember to this day the feeling when the vice chancellor turned to me and just looked to me and said so what do the students think and I had absolutely nothing to say so my advice would be just always have a few sentences to tell the vice chancellor what the student thinks just in case that you've tuned out of the conversation so um, one other one final piece of advice is uh, you would expect me to say this but to keep up keep up to date with what's going on in the higher education policy landscape because um, it's moving rapidly institutions have to be agile um, and have to come up with solutions to respond to those changes uh, the student union is an important partner in that um, and we have a service uh, that helps you do exactly that. We have Wonky SUs, which is a subscription service um, to help keep you informed about what's going on. Uh, but more than that, um, we have training, we have webinars, uh, our WhatsApp group uh, keeps you up to speed all through the day. Um, a whole suite of information services uh, that I think uh, you'll find really valuable didn't exist when um, when when I was a student officer. I really, really wish it had. Um, it's a new service for us we launched this year and We've already got several dozen student unions who are benefiting from it. Um, so give it a look. Um, so that is about it for this week. Remember to delve deeper into anything we've discussed today. You'll find the links in the show notes. And don't forget, you can subscribe to the podcast automatically. Just search for The Wonky Show via iTunes or your favourite Android podcast directory. Or you can find the feed that you need on wonky.com forward slash podcast. And if you'd like to appear as a guest on The Wonky Show, do drop us an email on team at wonky.com and we will be in touch. So thanks to Mary, to Pete and to Mark and everyone at Team Wonky for making it happen. And until next week, stay electable. Stay electable.